So get out your teaching notes here and across all the campuses. We're on the same teaching subject each weekend through this series. Makes it a lot more fun here at Central Hamilton Mill Flowery Branch Sugarloaf. So right on the back of your bulletin are the teaching notes. Grab a pen and drop these thoughts somewhere near the top of your notes. I'm going to take it to the whiteboard. Let's consider it together. See, we live in a world where appetites, you just write this down, where appetites lead. Listen, we live in a world where appetites lead decision-making. That's often true in areas like food appetites, in areas like sexual appetites, material appetites. And Jesus modeled something wholly different. Jesus modeled truth. Say it with me, what? Truth leads. And Jesus was communicating something very distinctive here. Here's the nature of the question then. Here's kind of the point. Does truth bow to appetites? Which one leads your life? Does truth bow to appetites in your life? Or do appetites bow to truth? You see, the difference between those two, or the difference between life and death, and that's where we're going today. That's where we're going to teach, and so we're going to go the long way, all the way around in the teaching, and come right back here. So Jesus. Jesus settled truth leads. Jesus resolved this, built this, formed this during his years of obscurity. So welcome to week two of Obscurity, The Secrets of Strength. If you missed week one, pick up the CD, get get online, get get it some way, pick it up and catch up. One of the pictures we painted in the introduction of this series was the iceberg, often called the tip of the iceberg, right? Because what they tell us is that what you can't see of an iceberg is just the top 10%. It's only 10% of the whole iceberg. 90% of the iceberg, all its strength is unseen, hidden submerged underneath. And we made the application to the life of Jesus. That that equation was true of Jesus. Jesus lived 33 years on this earth. But 90% of his life, 30 years, were, were lived in obscurity, relative hiddenness, anonymity. We encourage you to pick up that book sitting at the bottom of your teaching notes as a recommendation. And Jesus, having lived the majority of his years in obscurity, we discover that during those seasons, God was forming future strength. God was forming future what? Strength. And you see it when you step into the temptations of Jesus. In fact, we encourage you to read Matthew chapter 4 this week, kind of get ready for the teaching. Because each week we're going to tap in to one of the three temptations of Jesus and apply it to our lives. So take your Bibles here across campuses. Turn with me back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, page 967. Matthew chapter 4, page 967. By the way, if you're visiting with us, you're spiritually unresolved. Hey, if you don't have a Bible of your own, 
Let this be our gift to you. Literally, just take it right now. Put your name on the front. Take it with you. Get inside God's word. Understand his teaching. Love to have you along on the journey. Matthew chapter 4. We find the temptations of Jesus. Verse 1, chapter 4, page 967. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Hey, I'll bet he was. (laughs) Bit of an understatement. Verse 3. And the tempter, the who? The tempter. Say it again. The who? The tempter. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me make sure we have the story. Jesus. Jesus, who is part of the Trinity. One God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. Uniquely blended in this oneness, yet distinct. And Jesus has always existed, was never created. The book of John tells us, in the beginning was the word, the word was, and all talked about Jesus. And at a moment in time, out of God's love for us to redeem us to himself because of sin and what it had done to us, God sends his son Jesus into the world. And what does Jesus do? Jesus steps out of heaven suspends his divinity, takes on human form, and so he's fully God and fully man. And now the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness. He's going to be tempted by the tempter. In other words, there is an enemy. You better get this clear. There is an enemy. There is an evil one. Satan, the fallen angel, Lucifer, the tempter. And as he was attempting to tempt Jesus to sin, to fail, so he tempts you. And we have the first temptation, which is appetites. And I gave you last week lessons that Jesus has learned, if you will, the strength he has gained during those seasons of obscurity. And we would be wise to, if you will, let God form these in us. The three are right there in your notes. If you want to kind of fill in the blank on the top three, we'll do it again together. Here they are. Strength to detect a lie. Strength to what? Detect. Say it with me. Strength to what? Detect a lie. Second, strength to stand on truth. Strength to what? Say it with me. Stand. Strength to what? Stand on truth. And number three, strength to conquer temptation. Strength to what? Conquer temptation. Now, these are things that Jesus learned, and we're going to tap in and kind of apply these three thoughts to each temptation. Here's the first one. Number one, strength to detect a lie. Well, just as I illustrated last weekend, You need to be able to detect lies because otherwise they're costly. Remember I told the story of of us taking a little hike in the North Georgia woods, and in the course of that, uh, we didn't detect the poison ivy, even though we were warned, even though we were told. We kind of played ignorance is bliss, right? Isn't that fun? Isn't that just to, to walk around in your life and to pretend ignorance is bliss, to pretend there's no tempter, there's no temptation, there's no real epic battle going on for your soul, the eternity is not on the line. Just kind of walk around, ignorance is bliss. Hey, whatever my appetite, just wait, no big deal, just hey, who? And ignorance is bliss works for a while. And then it becomes ignorance is agony, right? And so Jaden ends up with poison ivy over 50% of his body. And that pain and suffering could have been avoided if we could have detected a lie. That's really what James is saying. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want them over on page 1216, James chapter 1. 
And if you don't turn there, just listen very carefully. James chapter 1, verse 13, he's teaching us. When tempted, okay, that's going to happen. He's talking about trials and temptation, and then he's getting to, to temptation that really wants to pull you away from God and take you out of your faith. Well, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. In other words, by their own appetites, if you will. Well, whether they're food appetites or sexual appetites or, or material appetites. So, so here we go. They're dragged away by their own evil desires, appetites, and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And In other words, you may play, ignorance is bliss and sin's no big deal. But eventually, that sin will become full grown in your life and give birth to sin. You're going to suffer. Ignorance is agony. In fact, here's what Satan wants to do. I put this in my own notes. You might want to jot this down because you, you got to understand what he was doing with Jesus. He was going after something very specific, and he does this with us. And here it is. Satan tempts us to satisfy godly appetites in ungodly ways. Jot it down. You better know what's going on because you got to be able to detect the lie. See, Satan tempts us to satisfy godly appetites. What kind of appetites? Godly. These are normal, natural, God-given, appropriate appetites. Godly appetites, how? In ungodly ways. That's the core of most appetite temptations. See, uh, let me say it this way. What's true of food appetites is true of sexual appetites and material appetites. So I'm going to talk about food appetites a little bit, but you just go ahead in your mind and understand we're talking about all of them, huh? So let me go there. I love sugar. I'm going to own it. I, I, I love desserts. I love chocolate. I love sugary-filled things. Anybody want to join my club of confession? Thank you very much. Delighted not to be alone. The rest of you self-righteous? No, I'm not going to go. I'm just going <laughs> to. I, I love sugary-filled things, and it probably started with Pop-Tarts because I was three years old when they were invented. What chance did I have? I was being raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, 60 minutes from the core of the invention in Battle Creek, Michigan. What chance did I have? I am a victim. <laughs> okay. And I think Seinfeld delivers it as well as anybody. Enjoy these couple of minutes. Food affects your life. When I was a kid and they invented the Pop-Tart, the back of my head blew right off. <laughs> right? It was so great, we couldn't handle it. We didn't even know what it was. They didn't ramp us up to the Pop-Tart. It was the 60s. We had toast. <laughs> We had orange juice frozen years in advance. You had to hack away at it with a knife to get a couple of drops of liquidity. Shredded wheat was like wrapping your lips around a wood chipper. You'd have breakfast, you had to take two days off for the scars to heal so you could speak again. My mother would make cream of wheat. She wouldn't put water in it. Why? This, it says water in the recipe. Couldn't even move the spoon and be these gross, uncooked lumps just floating. <laughs> Felt like I was rowing in the hull of a slave ship. <laughs> and then in the midst of this darkness and hopelessness, the Kellogg's Company of Battle Creek, Michigan. What, what was going on in Battle Creek, Michigan? Some serial Silicon Valley of the upper Midwest. They sent their top serial scientists into a room 
and said, don't come out until you have come up with a frosted, fruit-filled, heatable rectangle in the same shape as the box it comes in. <laughs> and with the same nutrition as the box it comes in, too. <laughs> And I don't know how long they were in there, but when they came out, they must have been like Moses with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> the Pop-Tarts. Once there were Pop-Tarts, I did not understand why other types of food continued to exist. <laughs> My mother being in the kitchen cooking, I would go, what are you doing? Don't you see it's over? We have the Pop-Tart now. <laughs> two in each packet, two slots in the toaster. One's not enough, three's too many, and they can't go stale because they were never fresh. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, how many of us have ever had a Pop-Tart? Let me see the hands across all the campuses. Absolutely. Of course you have. You have to. We know there is sin in the arena of nutrition and really good eating. The truth of the matter is though, Satan tempts us to satisfy godly appetites in ungodly ways. It's true in all arenas of appetite. Now, see, food is a godly appetite. God created us for food, to have food. We need food. We need to eat to live. But sometimes that can get flipped, and pretty soon we live to eat, right? See, we go places body was never designed to go. Appetite takes over. Things begin to break down. This past summer, I gave my appetite freedom, <laughs> I unleashed it. I said, you, Mr. Appetite, have now been unchained. You now make the choices. Over these couple of months, whatever you desire, you pick. You have. I want you to know, it was an awesome summer. I'm telling you, when I walked in, whatever I was, let me try some of that. And let me have some of that. It was, it was, I just, it's almost spiritual. It was, it was just that good. At the end of July, I weighed myself, which is always a mistake. You know what I'm talking about? If you're going to eat like that, don't weigh yourself. And I gained 10 pounds. And I hate that. It, I was depressed. You know what I'm talking about? Am I all alone? I'm just, I was just depressed. Like all that work. I just... <laughs> now I got to go spend 90 days doing the discipline, the appetite thing. I got to eat, you know, smart and small five times a day, lean into protein, work out six days a week, seven to 800 calories. Now I'll go do that for the next 90 days. I'll get back to where I'm supposed to be. And here's what I discovered. I either hate it on the back end when I'm fat and soft, or I hate it on the front end when I have to be disciplined. But listen, listen, the world lies and tells you that you can indulge appetite and there will be no cost. And that's an absolute lie, yes? It's an absolute lie. Now, see, what you need to know is if you're going to indulge, you're going to die somewhere. You're going to die either at the back end because you did indulge, or you're going to have to deal with it on the front end. And temptation lies to us. It tells us that life's just going to be all fun. Let your appetite run. It's a lie. you got to be able to detect the lie. Marcia and I celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary this past Wednesday. 31 years. Yeah. She has dealt with me for 30. Don't you want to pray for her? Don't you, don't you just amaze the saint that she is? 
We have an awesome time together and love life. But I can tell you this, and you've heard it before. If you're around here, it wasn't that way in the beginning. About second to third year in, I, 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 I hate to confess, but it's just true. I've said it before. About second, third year in, I told myself, you married a willful woman. That was a mistake. I may have to divorce her. I mean, seriously, did. I know it'll wreck my ministry, take me out of ministry, probably wreck my life. But you know what? I, I'm not bowing to her. I'm not dealing with this. I mean, something's wrong with her. She doesn't even do what I say. <laughs> Did she not read the marriage vows? This was clear. You know what I really don't like? I don't like when Jesus says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't like that scripture. I want a black eye like that one. You know why? Because for our marriage to be great on the back end, I would have to die to myself on the front end. And I would prefer to be a boy and still have a man marriage. But that's not an option. You see, if I won't die on the front end, then our marriage will die on the back end. But something's going to die. When you got people running around indulging their appetites, telling you for being a disciplined person that you're just losing out on the best of life, it's an absolute lie. Something in their life is dying, and when it's full grown, it will die. See, Satan tempts us to satisfy godly appetites in an ungodly way. And so you're going to have to stop the lie. You're going to have to learn to detect lies. Jesus had the strength to detect a lie. That's what sets him apart. When you see Jesus in the temptation and, and, and Satan delivers, the tempter delivers. Hey, here's what you need to do. You need to turn stone into bread. You're hungry. And I'll bet he's hungry. Or he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Of course he's hungry. And these are God-given desires. So Satan says, why not do it? So where is the sin in it? I want you to get this. We're going to spend a little time theological. I'm going to do this. you got, you got to understand this. So you just weigh in. Follow along. Catch this. There's deep richness in here. And you need to understand. I'm not skipping this. So let's go here. Where was the sin? What was sin? Where was the lie? What did Jesus detect? I'm telling you at least this. Jesus detected that Satan was setting Jesus up to dismiss his heavenly father's timing. To distrust his heavenly father's care. And to disqualify himself to be the sacrifice for sin. To be the ransom. Let me walk through it. Jesus detected that Satan was setting him up to dismiss his father's timing. See, Satan said, hey, why don't you make the stone into bread? You're hungry. And Jesus said, I've come to do the will of my Father in heaven, not to do my own. That was his claim. And what Jesus detected in the moment is that this was not the Father's will. This was not the Father's timing. This was Satan's. Listen very carefully. We have all kinds of issues with God's timing. See, when we don't like God's timing to satisfy an appetite, we dismiss him. No, tell me this isn't an issue. Let's just talk about sexual appetites. We live in a world where God created sex as a gift for a man and a woman inside marriage, one person for life till death do you part. And we don't like the timing. We don't want to wait. 
We'll have sex with whomever, whenever, however we choose. And so appetite leads in this culture. What leads in your life? See, Jesus knew that he was being invited to dismiss the Father's timing. It's more than that. He was being invited to, to distrust the Father's care. It's almost as if Satan was saying to Jesus, now listen, Jesus, listen, listen. Your heavenly Father really loves you? Really? Well, if he really loved you, he would feed you. He hasn't fed you, left you hungry for 40 days. Does God really love you? Does your Father in heaven really care? I mean, gee, hey, doesn't your Father want you to be happy? Isn't that a great line? And now, don't people use that all the time? Doesn't God want you to be happy? As if, listen, as if your momentary unhappiness is permission to distrust God. Do it all the time. Jesus didn't buy, he detected a lie. Third, <laughs> Jesus understood that Satan was trying to disqualify him to be the sacrifice for sin. Disqualify him. Let, let, let me explain. See, Jesus made a commitment to follow the Father. And what Satan was trying to do is make Jesus his own man. Watch, watch, watch. Satan was suggesting that there are three options in life. You can be God's man, you could be Satan's man, or you could be your own man. And Satan was saying, Jesus, just be your own man. Make your own decisions. Make it your own timing. Take care of it. You have the power to do this. Pull it off. Watch. What Jesus knew is that there's no third option. It doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as being your own man or your own woman. You are either God's man or woman or you are Satan's man or woman. And that's it. And under temptation, he's not trying to help you satisfy your appetites. He's trying to get you to bow to him. And if you can't see the lie, you become his pawn. See, he was trying to get Jesus to disqualify. This is a fascinating conversation. And so I'm going to venture into theology for a moment. Hope you can keep up. Jesus was originally and was still God. But when he left heaven and came to earth, he suspended his divinity. What is the mark of divinity? Divinity is everywhere present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. True? This would be correct, yes. True? And so, Jesus was used to being everywhere present, but he suspended that, and when he came to earth, he existed in a human body. He limited his presence to one physical human body. Can you imagine that, being God and being restricted like that? Jesus was all-knowing, but he suspended his divinity. And I believe what it literally meant, I believe what he literally did, is he had to learn and grow and discover from the time of birth through 12 years all the way up to 30 years that he was the son of God. I think he had to learn it. I think that's part of his growing up process. I think it was discovery and why it was a very real temptation for him. He wasn't omniscient when he was on earth. Nor was he all-powerful. 
I believe that the power that Jesus exercised to accomplish the miracles that he performed was by the will of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. Which is why I said to his disciples, greater things will you do than what I have done because I will send the Holy Spirit and he will indwell you. But many people say, well, I don't see that evident in people's lives because they want people to use the Holy Spirit for their own will to accomplish their own purpose. When in fact, the only reason the Holy Spirit is you is to help you accomplish the will of the Father who is in you. That's the only purpose. It's not to go prove something to somebody else that God is in you. And so Jesus, if, listen, if Jesus had turned the stone into bread, he would have to access his divinity to do it, which he could have done, and it would have disqualified him to be the ransom for our sin. It would have made him fully God and not man. Satan was not tempting Jesus to help him find food. He was tempting Jesus to dismiss his heavenly father's timing, to distrust his heavenly father's care, and to disqualify himself. And I want to tell you, Satan's doing that with you all the time. He's trying to get you to dismiss God's timing in your life, to distrust God's care, and to disqualify you for the things God has for you. It's powerful. And Jesus turned and said, no, it is written. It is written. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And here's what Jesus was telling us. Listen, we are not just physical beings. My physical appetites do not drive my life. I am a spirit being. And you are a spirit being. And your spirit appetites, your spirit needs should be attended to before physical need. In essence, in that order. In other words, truth should lead, not appetites. Where was he quoting this from? From studying the Torah that he grew up with. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8 where the Israelites were in Egypt under bondage. Having been so for 400 years, begged God to release them. When he did, he took them out in the desert. Maybe the same desert Jesus was in at the time. And when they got hungry, they said, we'd rather go back to Egypt. They turned on God. And they were being tested. And Moses said, this is so you would know. Man does not live by bread alone. You are not purely a physical being. You live by the word of God. Life in this world is sustained by the power of God, not mere physical appetites. You are a spiritual, physical being. So change how you think. It's in your notes. Change how you think. The temptation to live for physical appetites. You have to change the temptation to live. To what? Live for physical appetites. And you know what? We live in a world where appetites lead, and that's got to change in your thinking. Appetites can't lead. A second thing. Isn't that fun right right there? I mean, that stuff right there, just go. I I could go do that for about an hour with you all. I I wish we could go sit down. There's deep, rich, theological understanding that if you could change your thinking. Okay, I got to move on. All right, number two. Strength to stand. Say it with me. Strength to what? Stand on truth. This is where you have to change what you do. Strength to stand on truth. You got to change what you do. I told you that our family... In July, I had gone to the shoot the hooch to, to you know, float down the Chattahoochee. And how many people have done that? You see a picture on the screen? Kind of give you, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And there were eight of us, so, so eight of us did it all, all together. Uh, my, my two older married kids, uh, Josh and Christina, daughter-in-law, and then Julissa and her, her recent husband, Kevin, the, the Weigels now. I have to call her Julissa Weigel. I'm still working on that. That's, that's about three months. And, and then Jake, our, our son on the way to college, Jaden, the 10-year-old, Marshall, myself. So, so what we do, we have, we're having great 
fun, and we linked all of them together, and we discovered that when eight are linked, it's a lot of fun, but it puts you in a lot of trouble, because many times somebody gets in the wrong slot. So as we were coming to the worst rapids of the day, we realized can't do it with eight, and we broke up in two groups of four. Still not very smart, because somebody's going to get in trouble. Well, we passed through in the first group, and we did fine, and, and Julissa and Kevin and Josh and Christina were behind us, and as they were coming up, apparently Julissa saw that there was going to be some difficulty. The, the kid in front of her got kind of launched over it and thrown into the, into the water and into the rocks, and she thought, I don't want that to happen, and she could see that it was going to happen to her, and so she got right in the worst of the section, and it was going to happen to her. She dug down and crouched, and when she did, the, the tube just ripped right over her, and she was standing there, kind of sitting there on the rock. Well, then the current is so strong that it swept her down into the rocks. Unfortunately, when it swept her down into the rocks, she got her feet, her legs caught under rocks. So now there's massive current pushing behind her, and she can't get out. She's stuck. Down the river is her husband of three months. And what's he doing? Nothing. He's safe. He's out of disaster. No danger for him. He's just sitting there floating, and I'm watching this, and I'm like, I guess Superman Daddy's going to have to get out of his tube, make it up the river, and rescue the daughter in distress. I've been doing it for 23 years. I might as well keep it going because obviously the husband isn't stepping up. That's okay. I'm used to being that person. All right, honestly, this is what was going through my head, but that's not actually what happened. What actually happened is Kevin was getting off his tube, Josh was getting off his tube, and they could not move up the current. It was so strong. The current kept taking them. They had no strength. It was too strong. Eventually, enough people hit Julissa coming over the little falls that it dislodged her leg, and she submerged and floated down, bleeding bruised, blue, purple, nasty. And she was just grateful to be out from under the rock. Now, I want you to hear this. When you get in the current, it is tough to stand. Even more difficult to walk up current. That is true spiritually. When you get in the current of temptation... It is so much stronger than you imagine that you not only can hardly go upstream at all, you could hardly stand. And something has to change. You have to change what you do. Hear me. The best way to beat temptation, the current of temptation, is to never get in the water. Come on now. When it comes to sin, just don't get in the water. Jesus was a friend of sinners, that is true, but he never joined them in sin. He never got in the waters of temptation. You see what that means for many of us, listen, is that when it comes to sin, when it comes to temptation, we shouldn't even get in the water, we shouldn't even play in it. Listen, there are some streams we should never get in because we're vulnerable. Our appetites can't handle it. You say, well, I don't know how to handle temptation. I'll tell you how. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to be. Don't go get in the current and then say, I don't have enough strength for the current. Just don't get in the water. Not like back in my late 20s and early 30s, I had so many unresolved issues that came out through competition that I could not lose well. 
And I quit our church softball team at this church solely because at the end of every game, I was a (laughs) non-Christian. That was a stream I couldn't play in. There are some websites you should never tap into. Because it's too much temptation, it'll sweep you down. Listen, when I'm trying to do the right thing eating, there are some restaurants I just don't go to. I can't go to On the Border. I will eat four baskets of chips before we even get the meal. Can't it just, oh, these are awesome. Let me ask you something. What water should you never even put a toe in? See, many times we let feelings drive our lives. We get in the midst of the current of temptation, and it sucks us down the river of emotion. And we want to get out, but we put ourselves in a place where we can't. And we have to change what we do. Don't even get in the water. We have to change what we do. We have to tell the truth. I put this in your notes. You have to tell the truth. I'm going to finish it, but I want to stop right there. We have to tell the what? Truth. We have to tell the truth about the world that we live in. I live in a fallible, fallen, broken world, and I am broken as well. And I live in a world that makes decisions on changing emotions and changing feelings instead of God's unchanging truth. And I live in that world, and I'm vulnerable to it. I got to tell the truth. That's the world I live in. And then, as I put it in your notes, I have to tell the truth to someone who stands on truth. I have to tell the truth to someone who stands on truth. Hear me in this. I can't do this alone. I do not win temptation alone in my life. I wasn't even made to. I can't, I can't endure this. I need to be with others who are striving to stand on truth, and I need others to help me to keep me on the right course. In, in Hebrews, just listen to this. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're encouraged Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur, listen to this church, how we may spur, is everybody listening? How we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You know what God's word tells us repeatedly? You need to be in community with others who are seeking to stand on truth. You can't go do this alone. You need to be sharpening one another spiritually. You need to be encouraging one another. You need to be in the word together. You need to be talking about it. You need to be telling the truth about your life. In fact, Jesus grew up with others who stood on truth, pouring into his life. He did that for many other people. In great part, that's why we do small groups together. In fact, it's one of the most powerful things that we do as a church. You're going to have to change what you do. You can't go do this on your own. There's a story I came across regarding small groups, and a gal Tolstone here jumped to a small group. They shared the story with me. You got to hear her story. You ready? Listen to this. Here's, here's Lisa McKenna's story. I did not grow up going to church and had no real religious education. About three years ago, things happened in my life that I could not fix on my own. So I started attending church with my husband, Eric, to see if there was something I was missing. Eric was raised loosely in the church, but the experience was more religion than relationship, the familiar bad experience, hypocrisy stuff. I began to hear of God's unconditional love for me and his plan for my life. After a few months, we finally tried one of those small groups. Don't you love that? After a while, we finally tried one of those small groups I keep hearing about. So my husband and I took a chance and joined one. 
I came in knowing nothing with lots of misconceptions and questions. I started to learn more about God's truths, who God really is. I finally found a place to ask the questions I've always wanted to ask. In this season of my journey, I offered the prayer for salvation. I was being transformed by the renewing of my mind. I was feeling this newness on the inside and began to show it on the outside. I believe that I am going to heaven because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know that he died on the cross for me, and I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins. After forming a relationship with God, I have learned my true identity in Christ. In fact, let's just pause for a moment because we have her baptism and that is just worth celebrating every time. Listen in. About a year ago, as she was reading through the Bible with her small group, realized that she wanted to surrender her life back to Jesus, that this is, uh, this is someone that she wants to give her life to. And so now she comes forward as a, a new creation, uh, changed by community, changed by Jesus, changed by her relationship with God. And she's a follower of Jesus Christ. And so she comes forward in baptism to go public with that. So Lisa, I have two questions for you. Do you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? I do. And do you commit to follow him all the days of your life? I do. Then it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we should, church. Cross the campuses. We should celebrate that. Listen, God changed her life, and yes, he used the catalyst of weekend teaching, but I'm telling you, the steady, stable, layered process of spiritual growth happens predominantly in small group. And that's where it happened for her. And that's what's going to happen for you. When we launch and invite you into small groups, it's so that God can form future strength so that together we can encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Help each other, if you will. Stay out of the right streams. Listen, church, you go get in a small group, and after a while what's going to happen is you're going to build relationships and form relationships where together you're telling the truth. You're all trying to stand in the current of life. Stand for truth. And what's going to happen over time, as it did in my life, is you're going to start building friendships that are closer with one or two people. And eventually you're going to discover, as I have, that those become accountability relationships, spiritual accountability. I'm telling you, practically right now, people dismiss this all the time. I give this advice all the time. The majority of people do not do it. I'm telling you, you're losing for it. I do not win temptation in my life all on my own. I not only have my relationship with my wife where we're very open, but men and women, I have an accountability partner. Every man or woman has two or three appetites where you are vulnerable. What are they? I share them with my accountability partner. My wife knows them too. We even have what we call offensive accountability. You know what that is? He doesn't have to ask me to catch me. Anytime I put a toe, a foot, a leg in the wrong stream, in the wrong water, I have to call him, text him, email him. Because I don't want to live where secrets and private life begin to take root. And I join the devil in deceit. And pretty soon, I'm caught in a current that leads to sin. And when full grown, leads to death. See, God has more for all of us. So there you have it. Next week, I'm going to pick up on the second temptation. Applause. We're going to finish that third point. We're going to fill in that blank that I'm not going to fill in. Just to drive you fill in the blank fetish kind of people nuts. And we'll do that next weekend. But as I turn the service over to the campus pastors, there are a couple questions that sit at the bottom of your teaching notes. 
They're reflective kind of questions. Where are you being tempted in physical appetites? Sexual appetites, food appetites, material appetites. Or what are the two to three where you're most vulnerable? And and while we're at it, who can you trust in accountability? Who can trust you? And maybe small group is your next major move. Why? I'll tell you why. Remember where we were? Come on, let's go back. Remember? Because we live in a world where appetites, what? Lead. And Jesus models something wholly different. Truth leads. Which one leads in your life? More than that, let's settle it today to join Jesus and let truth lead.